0: Anybody ever deal with distractions? <laughs> Anybody ever get lost in the details of something or get lost completely off the subject of something? <clears throat> I remember, and this may be fresh for some of you all too, I remember as a, uh, as a teenager specifically, I would be told to go clean my room, which needed it. It had its own peculiar odor, but had its own peculiar odor as well. But um, I would be told to go clean my room, and let me tell you what—it took about 12 minutes to lose sight of what I was up there doing. And I'd see something I hadn't seen in a while, and I'd sit down, I'd look at it, or I'd read it, or I'd, I'm like, you know, I'm going to do this right, and I start pulling drawers out, and then I've got stuff everywhere. And six hours later. My room looks exponentially worse than it did when I started. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Amen. Um, yeah. So I, I lost sight of what mattered. The command was clean your room, and with honest intentions, I was trying, but I got lost. I, did y'all see the movie Up? The the dog squirrel. You know, you kind of you lose your focus by the tiniest thing. And I believe, well I know, for me, that definitely happens in my spiritual life, in my worship, in my honoring of God. Good intentions, trying hard, and six months up the road, squirrel, you know, I I don't know what happened. and I've lost my focus. I've lost my purpose. And I'm still trying real hard, but there's a mess all around me. We've been talking about taking care of our brother's conscience over the last few weeks in Romans 14. And we're going to talk about that again today. We're going to make some progress through this hefty paragraph that we've been looking at. And I think what today is going to do, is going to kind of be like, M- my mom. <laughs> I wish I could explain the layout of my house to you when I was growing up. As you came up the, up the steps... There was a wall there. That was my room. Well, my mom found out that if she came up and beat on that wall, it would get my attention. <laughs> oh! And I'm looking around like, oh, gee, there's stuff everywhere. <laughs> i got to get this stuff cleaned up. Today, I think God's going to kind of pound our wall a little bit and bring us back to our right attention, our right affection, our right purpose in all of this so that we might stay on task so that we might get done what we need to do by His grace and by His Spirit. If you would stand, we're going to read Romans 14, 13-23. Our focus today will be on verses 16-19. through 19, But we'll have some review and we'll press on. But we stand because we understand these are the very words of God spoken to us and for us. So we respect that and honor that. Romans fourteen thirteen through 23 Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. God, we've got a, a hefty task in front of us as disciples of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would beat on our wall this morning. Bring us back to the main thing. Help us to focus our attention and our affection upon who you are and what you've called us to in your kingdom. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive and then to live out your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to quickly run through verses 13 through 15 to review where we've been because it's been quite a journey over the last four or five weeks, hasn't it? It's funny, something that I think initially, if I'm honest with you, seemed innocuous. Kind of like, okay, no big deal here. Turned into a really big deal. Really big deal over the course of these first few verses. Verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, let me frame this up again quickly. We're talking about non-essential convictions amongst Christians. Amongst believers, we're not talking about doctrines of salvation. We're not talking about major points of morality. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. These these issues are not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, is it right to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Is it right or wrong to drink wine? Is it right to observe the Sabbath or not? That's what these people were dealing with. And we've got a myriad of those issues in our day-to-day. Maybe not the same ones. Maybe some similar ones. But... What Paul says here in verse 13 is, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer concerning these things. Again, there's a time and a place for us to judge each other. We're called to judge each other, but not in the matter of non-essential convictions. But rather, our purpose, we have to decide in our minds to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And those stumbling blocks or hindrances are things that we would do that might violate their conscience, which leads us into verse 14. Verse 14. If I can get this off my screen. There we go. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, plainly says, there's no unclean meat. There's no unclean wine. There's no unclean day. There's no right way to observe a day or not. Nothing, nothing, nothing is unclean in and of itself. And he knows and is persuaded of that in the Lord Jesus. So this is divine inspiration. So nothing is unclean in itself. You're like, shoo, good. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So what we get into here is conscience. And that's the week we talked about what conscience is and why it matters. Conscience being that, that... thing that goes on in our souls that tells us, I don't feel good about this. You can know it's okay, but not feel all right about it. So in your conscience, that not unclean thing becomes unclean. And that's divine inspiration as well. Then verse 15... is what we talked about last week. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, we've seen for a couple months now, the purpose of all of this instruction is to let love be genuine. That was back in Romans twelve nine. That's the goal of all of this instruction in 12, 13, 14, and part of 15. Our goal is to let love be genuine among the brothers. So... If your brother is grieved by what you eat, so if your brother's conscience is defiled, weakened, offended by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, which is the goal of all this. So if you're choosing to flaunt your freedom and say, There's, this is not unclean, I'm fine, I'm good, I don't care what you think. Well, what, what are you saying? You're saying, I don't love you. I love this meat more than I love you. So, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. And then this statement. Wow. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. This is what we talked about last week in triplicate, in quadruplicate. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What we saw last week is a violated conscience can lead to a shipwrecked faith which can ultimately even lead to the destruction of somebody's body. Paul talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander. He talked about this guy in Corinth who was sleeping with his father's wife. And he said he handed all three of those people over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh in order that their spirit might be saved. So a violated conscience led to a shipwrecked faith. And a shipwrecked faith can literally lead to us being handed over to Satan for our flesh to be destroyed so that our spirit might be saved. So what we said last week was, this is literally a matter of life and death. Literally. We're not over-amplifying this. I think we have historically under-amplified it. How do I walk in genuine love so that I don't violate my brother's conscience? Because it's pretty important. So that's where we've been today. We start in verse 16. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So what's this all about? So again, we've been talking about not violating my brother's conscience. Me, by what I do, not violating my brother's conscience. And and we've seen it's a really big deal. Now, how do we go about doing that? Because we have a hard enough time dictating ourselves, right? Not violating our own conscience. What about this guy over here who, I don't know what he's thinking, I don't know what he's feeling. What he's saying here in verse 16 is starting in to show us how to do this, which I'm, I'm sure some of you have been going, thank goodness, tell me how to do this so that I can do it. In this example that we've been looking at in Romans 14 the way that we don't let what we regard as good be spoken of as evil, we start by looking at what we're eating. And if, if me eating not unclean meat that my brother thinks is unclean in his mind is evil to him, then I've got to say, wait a second, my eating the not unclean meat that is unclean in my brother's mind, violates his conscience and runs the danger of destroying him. And yes, even ultimate destruction we saw last week. So, if that meat, which is good in and of itself, it's not unclean except in my brother's mind, if eating that meat leads to someone's destruction, it would then surely run the risk of being spoken of as evil. Right? It's not evil, but the act of doing it could lead people to see that eating in a poor light. Why am I eating the meat? I'm eating it, back in Romans 13, Romans 14, to glorify God. I can glorify God by eating the meat. But, if my eating the meat leads to my brother's destruction, what is good can then be seen as bad. I'm like, I'm trying to glorify God and people are saying, look at your brother. You're destroying his conscience, so your good is not so good. Now, is my eating meat evil? No, not in and of itself, but it could be spoken of. It could be referred to. It could be seen as evil since it led to a brother's destruction. So, Paul's appeal is to be careful. Listen, be careful not to let your freedom not to let your acts of proper Christian liberty to be spoken of as evil. Which means ultimately, feel free to exercise your freedom as long as it doesn't infringe on another person's conscience, another believer's conscience. And if it's going to infringe on their conscience, then don't do it. Or else what is good, your eating meat to honor God, will be seen as and spoken of by others as evil including your weaker brother. So that's kind of an introductory verse. Now 17, verse 17 is monstrous. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, why would we consider not eating meat if it means my brother's conscience is going to be offended? Why would we consider not letting what we see as good be spoken of as evil? Why would we forego our freedom... For the sake of our weaker brother. And this sentence starts with what word? The theme of Romans is for. That seems like every time we turn a corner, for is staring us in the face. For, that's a purpose statement. For, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Why would we do these things? Why would we forego our freedom? Why would we act in such a way so as to not violate our brother's conscience? For, because... This is about the kingdom. It's not about food and drink. It's not about freedom. It's about the kingdom of God. I can do without my food and drink preferences. I can. I can do without some wants or even some needs. Why? Because the kingdom, the kingdom is the purpose. The kingdom is the reason. The kingdom of God is the goal that we are supposed to be focused on. makes me think of Matthew 6, 31 through 35, Jesus speaking, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Hmm. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, And all these things will be added to you. See the connection? Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, presents us with the ultimate goal, the ultimate aim of our lives, and He clearly says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is what we call a matter of first importance in the Scriptures. The best way to get something done is to have clear-cut goals that you're working toward. Go clean your room. Okay. Minutia. Distractions. Ooh, look at that. I haven't seen that in a long time. And then you're distracted. See how that works? You've got to have clear-cut goals. And the first goal, the first thing that should be before us as Christians is the kingdom of God and His righteousness as of first importance. That word seek there in Matthew 6.33 means to seek in order to find, to seek a thing, to seek in order to find out by thinking, meditating, reasoning, to inquire into, to seek after, to seek for, to aim at, to strive after, to require, to demand, to crave, to demand something from someone. It's wanting something and going after it body, soul, and spirit. And it's a present, active, imperative verb. You're like, great, I don't care. But you should. You should care. Because that means as long as the present is the present, as long as now is now, right? You should be doing this. You should be seeking. So as long as the present is the present part. Active, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? It's something that you do. And imperative means it's a command. Daddy's pounding on the wall. Get this done. Actively, presently, imperatively seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. First. As long as now is now. It's imperative. It's important that you do this. So what are we seeking presently, actively, and imperatively. We are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then tying that back into Romans 14, 17, what is this kingdom of God that's not about eating and drinking? The kingdom of God is mentioned specifically in the New Testament 67 times. Now, I did not include in that number the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus refers to a lot as well. Are they the same? Not this morning. We're not going there, okay? Okay. Uh, but the kingdom of God itself is mentioned specifically in the New Testament 67 times and mostly by Jesus Himself. Jesus was all about the kingdom. What did John the Baptist say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Jesus' first words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is what we are to seek First but there are mentions of the kingdom of god also in acts and in the, and in the paul's epistles this reference here in 14:17 is the only time in romans where it's mentioned so what is the kingdom of god because that could be some weird ethereal thing out there that we see this old man sitting on a throne with a throne, with a not a throne on his head with a crown on his head that would be weird <laughs> get that picture stuck in your head there's a throne on your head but anyway Jesus, God, old man, beard, whatever, sitting on a throne. He's got a crown on his head. He's got this big robe and he's sitting with his arms crossed. Is that the kingdom of God? No. No. What is the kingdom of God? What is this thing that we are to seek first before anything or anyone else? I turn to John Piper to define the kingdom of God because he did it pretty clearly. He gives three things that the kingdom of God is. Piper says the kingdom of God is the reign of God. Not the realm of God. That means it's not about, at this point, at this point, it's not about a physical kingdom that he's reigning over. It's not about the land yet. That'll happen. But right now, the kingdom of God is about the reign of God, how God reigns over his people. That was one, the reign of God, not the realm of God. Then Piper says that the kingdom of God is God's saving reign not His total providence over all creation. We could say that God rules over everything, but when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about how He reigns over His people as His subjects. Okay, And then three, the kingdom of God is partially fulfilled in the present and will be consummated at the end of the age when Christ returns. So the reign of God, not the realm of God, God's saving reign, not His total providence over all creation, and a kingdom that is partially fulfilled in the present and will be consummated at the end of the age when Christ returns. So God reigning over a group of people who are saved by Him that are living in an already but not yet tension waiting for the final consummation of the ultimate kingdom. So what is this kingdom of God? It's where God rules and reigns in the hearts and minds of people and they obey Him. We're going to get to more of that in just a minute. So if we're to seek the kingdom of God and not be caught up in food and drink, we should seek to live under the reign of God, knowing that our salvation is from Him and that we are in an already but not yet tension in this kingdom as we wait for His final perfect kingdom to be set up here at the end of all things. We live now like Jesus prayed in Matthew 6, asking God for His kingdom to come and His will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now the kingdom of God is where God's will is done as it is in heaven, which is perfectly, joyously, and lovingly. So seek that first. Seek to live in a righteous manner as of first importance. Seek that first and as you do, your freedom is a wonderful thing, but it's not the most important thing. Under God's reign, you reflect His desire both for you and your brother to walk in love. And back in Romans 14, 17, that means we're not caught up in eating and drinking, but instead we are living as kingdom citizens even now. Now, Piper summarizes this pretty well too. I'm going to quote him in this paragraph here. He says this, So Paul is saying in verse 16, Don't use your good, your good faith and your good liberty and your good food to hurt anyone. Don't put that much weight on eating and drinking. It's not that crucial. Why? Why? He answers in verse 17, because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The saving, redeeming, sanctifying rule of God, the kingdom of God, has broken into this world in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King, and the evidence of His rule in your lives is not eating and drinking. You may think that your liberty to eat all things is what God's kingdom produces, but that's not quite right. What the kingdom produces is something deeper and larger that governs how you use your liberty to eat all things." End of quote. The kingdom of God is not about what you put in your mouth. The kingdom of God is about what comes out of your heart. Jesus said Himself, It's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but that which comes from the heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the mouth eats, the mouth drinks. So this reign of God, this kingdom of God is about how is my heart before God and before my brother? And is that more important than what I taste, what I touch, what I feel? And this kingdom is a matter of what? This kingdom is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the things the kingdom of God is concerned with what the kingdom of God is made up of. And I want you to quickly, we'll quickly run through these. We could spend a lot of time here, but we won't. I want you to quickly think about these three things. If your life is to be focused on the kingdom of God, you will be concerned about these three things primarily, not your freedom to flaunt and revel in. Your freedom is good, but it's not the main thing. The kingdom is the main thing and the kingdom is about righteousness, which is living rightly before God and man. And your righteousness that has been given to you as a gift from God is not in question here. This is not about, do I stand right before God? We were given that standing as a gift of grace by God Himself. What we're talking about is righteous living. Living in an upright and righteous way. And that's a gift too because only the Holy Spirit can do that through us. Righteousness, living rightly before God and man. The kingdom is about peace. Anybody want peace? Anybody desire peace? Not just inner peace, which is what our culture is screaming when you need inner peace. Well, true, but I need to have peace with my brothers and my sisters. I need to have peace in my family. I need to have peace at my workplace. So it's not just internal peace. It's about living in such a way that there is a tranquility, there is a harmony, The kingdom of God is about peace, personal peace, public peace, peace with God. And the kingdom of God is about joy. Again, what a matter to be concerned with. What a matter to be caught up in joy. And where is that righteousness, peace, and joy found in the Christian life? It's found in the Holy Spirit. The New Testament refers to being in the Holy Spirit eight times and in the Spirit 17 times. We see phrases like praying in the Spirit, the gospel coming in the Spirit, and we are called to walk in the Spirit. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but rather about living a life that is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy as we operate in the Holy Spirit by His power, watching and marveling as He lives the life of Christ out through us. Now let me ask you a question. Would you say that Jesus Christ lived a life that was dominated marked by righteousness, peace, and joy. You betcha he, he surely did. He was a man well acquainted with grief. But as the example, the perfect example of the, the primary citizen of the kingdom of God, his life was marked by righteousness, peace, and joy. And how did he live that way? It's not a trick question. He lived that way in the Holy Spirit. And guess what, Christian? That very same Spirit that operated in Christ, the very same Spirit, Scripture says, that raised Him from the dead is now operational in you. Oh, okay. No. No, 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 no. Grab a hold of that fact. The very same Spirit that operated in Jesus Christ as the perfect example of the kingdom, citizen, is now operating in you and your fallen flesh, your redeemed flesh. That's what the kingdom is about. It's about operating in the Holy Spirit of God. And that is available to every believer. Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if you are a believer, if you've trusted Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sins, if you trust that Jesus was God in the flesh and that He bore your sins upon the cross and then was raised from the dead, ascended on high and seated at the right hand of God. If you believe that and trusted that for your salvation, you have the very same Spirit of God that resided in Jesus Christ. That's how kingdom people live, in the Spirit. And as we see this happening in and through us, by His power, we are seeing the very kingdom of God in our homes, in our jobs, in our churches, and in our very own individual lives. And it's not about food and drink, or freedom or weakness, but rather righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's pretty cool. Next verse. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. If you're living primarily concerned with God's kingdom, empowered and enlivened by the Holy Spirit, what's the result? You serve Christ and you do so in a way that is acceptable to God and approved by men. And note that when we are concerned with, consumed with seeking the kingdom of God, who are we serving? Whoever thus serves Christ. So as I'm serving God in the kingdom of God, I'm serving Christ. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And He sits upon a throne in heaven in a physical body as God in the flesh. So as I'm serving in God's kingdom, I'm serving Christ. I am serving Christ. And as such, we recognize His kingship in His kingdom and we love and worship Him by serving Him. And serving our brother and in not being caught up in food and drink, but instead concerning ourselves with the kingdom of God by serving Christ. And when we do so, we are both acceptable to God and approved by men. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be acceptable to God? That means if you do right, God won't be mad at you. No. If we do good, if we do right, then God will accept us. No. Be careful with the word accept because we can really get off track there. The trick in this question is the order. Do, we do not perform for God so that He will accept us. We spend 11 chapters of Romans establishing that His accepting of us is based on grace, not our performance. So then what does this mean? That we're acceptable to God. The word means to be walking in a manner that is well-pleasing. It's not trying to do well in order to be accepted, but rather pleasing because we are accepted. And that's very important. We see this echoed in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here we're exhorted to offer to God acceptable worship, and it's the very same word that we saw in Romans 14, and it means well-pleasing. Back in Romans, if we're serving God by seeking His kingdom and walking in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, then we are acceptable to God, which means we are well-pleasing to Him. And we want to please Him. Why wouldn't we? But that's not all. We're also, it said, approved by men. Now that's a problem for me. Are we to seek men's approval in serving Christ? Is that our goal? Paul didn't think so. Galatians 1.10, For for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So are we trying to please men or not? Because this verse here really seems to put the two aims, serving God and pleasing men, in opposition to each other. So why would he say in Romans 14.18 that the one seeking the kingdom of God is both pleasing to God and approved by men? This is a pretty neat illustration. The word for approved here refers to finding out if something is genuine or not. Donald Barnhouse tells it this way. Listen to this. In the ancient world, there was no banking system as we know it today and no paper money. All money was made from metal, heated until liquid, poured into molds and allowed to cool. When the coins were cooled, it was necessary to smooth off the uneven edges. The coins were comparatively soft and of course many people shaved them closely. So here you've got people making coins and they're keeping a little bit of the metal for themselves so that they can make more coins. Okay. Uh, in one century, more than 80 laws were passed in Athens to stop the practice of shaving down the coins then in circulation. But it says, some money changers were men of integrity who would accept no counterfeit money. They were men of honor who put only genuine full-weighted money into circulation. Such men were called dokimos, which is the word for approved. These money changers were approved by men. They were known to be honest and upright. They were true and they were real." And that's what Paul's referring to here in Romans 14. If we're serving God and our brother by focusing on the kingdom of God, walking in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, men will try us. They will even provoke us. But we will be shown to be real. We will, shown, we will show that we are genuine in our faith. And we will pass the test. Men will approve that our faith is real. Men will approve that our faith is living and active. Peter puts it like this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We will be persecuted. We will be accused. But if we are genuine, if we walk as servants of Christ and His kingdom, even those that seek opportunity against us will ultimately glorify God because of our good deeds. We will be approved by men. They will approve us one way or the other. And now, let's look at the purpose statement in this as we look at verse 19. The last verse we'll look at today. So then... Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The kingdom of God is our goal, it's our aim. And then here's the purpose statement behind why we do what we do Know your why. Why am I in this room? I'm here to clean this room, not to reminisce, not to make a mess. I'm here to clean this room. Stay on target, stay on target. Here's the purpose. This is the way that we let love be genuine in all of this meat, drink, day, and conscience stuff that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. So then, again, that's a purpose statement. So then what should we do? How should we live? Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We should pursue, which is, has a similar feel to it as Seek did in Matthew 6.33, and it seems like Paul is kind of playing with words in the original language. The word for approved is dokimos. Here the word for pursue is dioko. Not dioko, no, dioko. So we will be dokimos by men, so let us dioko. And it means, this word for pursue, dioko means to make, to run, or flee, to put to flight, to drive away, and here you go, to run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing, to run after, to press on, figuratively of one who is in a race and runs swiftly to reach the goal, to pursue in any way, whatever, to harass, trouble, or molest one. I don't think that one's accurate here. To persecute, to be mistreated, suffer persecution on account of something. Without the idea of hostility, it means to run after or to follow after, to seek after eagerly, earnestly, and to endeavor to acquire. So I am to pursue what? What makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I am to earnestly endeavor. I am to work hard. The thought pattern is one of working hard, chasing after something earnestly and passionately. And what are we to chase after passionately and earnestly? What makes for peace and mutual upbuilding long time ago, we made a decision to never put a stumbling block in a brother's path. And here, we go beyond that. We're not just, okay, I'm not going to lay that down there. I'm going to earnestly, passionately pursue peace and what builds us both up. Remember, we're in the context of conflict, of disagreements, of non-essential convictions that can lead to our brother being destroyed by the choices that we make. We can do things that cause his conscience to be violated, which can lead to the shipwreck of his faith and the possible destruction of the work of God in his life. So we should passionately and purposefully, as kingdom citizens of the kingdom of God, passionately and purposefully pursue, chase after what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And again, remember, this is in the particular context of seeking to not offend my brother by violating his conscience by what I do. I should seek, I should seek, I should seek those things, make those decisions that make for peace. And peace is not simply the absence of conflict, but rather it's a state of harmony and tranquility between parties. You ever lived in a house with a spouse that you weren't at peace with? There was no outer conflict, but something just didn't feel right. There was an absence of peace in the home. And you're going, what's going on here? What did I do? What did I say? Oh, nothing. It's fine. <sighs> I'm so afraid she's going to say that. <laughs> That's not peace. Peace is when there is harmony. Two people working together, two groups, two whatever, eight or ten people working together in such a way that what they produce together is better than what we could have produced alone. So it's not just the absence of conflict. A state of harmony and tranquility. That's what we're talking about when we talk about peace. So I'm pursuing peace. In this case, between the stronger and the weaker believer who share differing convictions in non essential matters. I am to chase after a life that makes decisions to purposefully not offend my brother and his conscience so that there might be peace, harmony, tranquility between us. And not just peace, but also mutual upbuilding. That word upbuilding is another I think is in the wordplay process. Let me show you these words together. The word for upbuilding is oikodome. So you've got approved, dokemos, pursue, dioko, upbuilding, oikodome. It seems like Paul's alliterating or doing something funny with those words. Is it? That didn't change for me. Ken, can you change that for me? I didn't, it didn't change for me. So I've got three words that we may or may not get to see. Locked up. Okay, it's locked up. We're fine. We'll go on. You may not have anything else up on the screen for the rest of the time. So, you've got these words. I'm to chase after life decisions to purposefully not offend my brother and his conscience. I am to chase after mutual upbuilding as well. Make decisions and live in such a way that we're promoting each other's growth and holiness and happiness. It's about edification, building one another up, not tearing one another down. I am to seek and you are to seek. We are to seek to do things that build up and encourage one another in our faith. I make my decisions based on what I think I should do that will benefit you and your faith and its growth and strengthening. If I think that eating meat would not build you up but would rather hinder you or confuse you, then I will not do it. Period. I'm chasing your well-being as I seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is Christian living this is Christian love, and this is our goal, especially in the midst of non-essential convictions. So, application points. I've got four. And I've got one from each verse. Okay, and it revolves around P's. It always comes back to P's, doesn't it? When I try to alliterate these things. The first application point is: don't parade your privilege. This is from verse 16. Know your freedom, but don't flaunt it so that it gets spoken of as evil. Don't flaunt your freedom. This goes back to what we looked at in 1 Corinthians 8 a couple weeks ago, where Paul said, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Don't flaunt your freedom. Meat, rub it in your face. I know you can eat it, but look at it. Again, we wouldn't do that. But really, if my eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'm not going to flaunt my freedom, stick out my chest and say, I can eat meat to the glory of God. And I don't care what you think about it. That's not love. That's flaunting your freedom and that's not walking in the kingdom of God. That's walking in the kingdom of Jason. Your your own kingdom. I can do whatever I want to do. Don't parade your privilege. Especially, especially if it makes your brother stumble and violates his conscience. That's the first application point. Don't parade your privilege. Second one, please God and be proven by men. That's from verse 18. And this is about worship. We saw that in the Hebrews verse, that we are to offer to God acceptable worship. So, as I'm not parading my privilege, I'm worshiping God to please Him. And when I do that, I, I'm, I'm acceptable to God and I'm approved by men. So please God and be proven by men. This is about worship and worship is life and life is worship. Live and worship in such a way that God is pleased and people are convinced and silenced. We looked at the First Peter verse, 1 Peter 2.12, "...keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." That bears repeating, but it also makes me think of Titus 2, 7 through 10. Listen to this. Talking about pleasing God and being proven by men. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's pretty cool for a teacher, but he doesn't stop there. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Teachers, even bondservants, are to live their lives in such a way that they are worshiping God. Paul would say in Colossians, do everything that you do to the glory of God. So I worship God and men look at what I do and ultimately they will be silenced because they're like, I can't disprove this guy's life. He's genuine. Down to the bondservant. Down to how he serves his boss. How he serves his parents. How he serves in the church. This guy's the real thing. His worship's genuine. And I'm going to keep provoking him. I'm going to keep pushing buttons because I want to see him fall. But you live in such a way that you're approved by God Acceptable to God and approved by men. Please God and be proven by men. That's application point two. Application point three is pursue peace. That's from verse 19. We are to be those who are for eradicating conflict when we can, especially among each other, especially among weaker brothers. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If we are to be like our Father, we will be those who do those things that make for peace, particularly with our brother in Christ. We are not to be the kind of people... (sighs) Please, don't be the kind of people who are always itching for a fight, who are always wanting to argue. You know these people. I am these people sometimes. And it seems like wherever these people go, they're starting conflicts. Facebook, Twitter, church, home, work. They're always grumbling. They're always complaining. And everybody else is always wrong. Don't be those people. Please, please, please don't be those people. Pursue peace. I'm not saying roll over and don't ever say anything. Speak the truth in love, but pursue peace. Don't go looking for a fight and argument with whatever other denomination you don't like. Stand for true doctrine, stand for the word of God. Yes, absolutely. Speaking the truth in love and pursue peace and mutual upbuilding is what we saw today. Please don't be the people who are always looking for a fight. We submit to one another, we saw earlier in Romans. We outdo one another in showing honor. We saw that earlier in Romans. And we do what builds one another up. Pursue peace. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-24 sums this up really well. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's peace. That's edification. And that is patently Christian. And that's what we're to pursue. Don't parade your privilege. Please God and be proven by men. Pursue peace. And what's the main way that all of this happens? Application four. Prioritize your path. Seek the kingdom of God. And this is the key, guys. This is the main thing. This is the big takeaway. Here we see righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here we see that the peripherals fall away and get swallowed up in the big picture. We are free. Yes, we are free absolutely positively. Praise the Lord, we are free. But we're also empowered even in the midst of our freedom to please God and to please our brother when we are primarily concerned with the kingdom of God, when we're primarily concerned with kingdom issues, instead of just our little plate, instead of just our personal privileges. I want us, I want me, I want you, I want us to be single-minded Believers. Fully focused on being kingdom citizens. Seeking first the kingdom. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, 12-14. And this is familiar. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said one thing. One thing I do. I press on toward the goal. And what was the goal? The goal is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Guys, let's be single-minded. Let's be concerned about the kingdom. And as we're concerned about the kingdom, we're going to love each other. We're going to pursue what's for peace. And you're not going to offend your brother because you're worshiping God and serving your brother. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. God, we are, I'm afraid, pretty good at majoring in minor things. I'm pretty sure, God, that I've lived so much of my life making big deals out of things that are not big deals. And therefore, missing the point of the whole thing. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Not just for me but for all of us that are members of that kingdom, that are citizens of that kingdom. And I pray that I would live in such a way, God. I pray that we would live in such a way that what matters in our homes, on our cell phones, at our jobs, in our cars, in our minds, in our hearts, that what matters is the kingdom of God. And that we would seek passionately, fervently, That kingdom, your kingdom, God, which equates to seeking you and that we would press on toward the upward goal of finding you in Christ Jesus and enjoying you and sharing you, loving each other, serving each other, and proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth until the end of time so that you might be famous through our lives. God, help us to be single-minded. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction as we finish? You therefore, beloved, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but... Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can, please.